one is always examining oneself for faults. And I suppose in fiction you can um, confess to very minor faults and feel you've got rid of them. But of course you're probably right that the very serious things one doesn't dare to look at at all. In fact, I know that one doesn't dare to look at them. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm talking to interesting and well-known guests to try and find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand who they are and what they're on about. Well, it's a very great pleasure to have with me uh, on Confessions today, Margaret Drabble, the novelist, and, well, I want to say social commentator, but perhaps we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, the way in which we, we uh, usually uh, play these conversations, we start by uh, saying something, I invite you to say something about where you've come from and your background and your parents and and something about your home. Sheffield was where you were born, wasn't it? I was born in Sheffield in 1939 at the outbreak of war. My parents were um, lower middle class South Yorkshire people. They'd been at school together. They um, lived in... Um, my mother lived in Mexborough, my father in Conisborough, and they both went to Mexborough um, School, where Ted Hughes later went. And they were in the same class, and they played together in the school plays. And then they went to Cambridge, the first child of either family see, ever right. to go into higher education. They were the same age, but a year divided them because my father had to... Um, his, fa his father didn't want him to go to university. He wanted him to work in the family business as a, sa as a travelling salesman. Lower uh, middle class South Yorkshire sounds to me a fairly socially conservative background. Would I assume that right or is that is that wrong? No, I don't think that is right. Okay, I, I think okay. that they were very left wing. Uh -huh, okay. um, the, it, it was mining country and it was, it was very Labour. I, I mean, see. it was um, my father um, stood as a Labour candidate um, at the end of the war. He was in the Air Force during the war. But no, my parents were both left wing right. um, members of the Labour Party. My father stood twice for Parliament but didn't get in. Um, he always said that was lucky. The, the first seat he stood for was Sheffield Hallam, which is the one that... Nick Clegg. It, that yeah. was a Tory seat, which is why my father didn't get it. It was, you know, he was a very young lawyer at the end of the war, um, straight out of the RAF, looking very handsome and charming, and uh, did very well, but not quite well enough. But Nick Clegg was the first non-conservative MP for oh, that oh, seat. Oh, oh. And it hasn't... It then did have a Labour candidate, a Labour MP, but I don't know what happened to him. I think he got into a bit of trouble, but I can't remember what. <laughs> yes. But that, that was the background, that they were left-thinking, um, and the school itself was left-thinking. So, I mean, uh, books were an important part of, of your growing up? Absolutely. Um, we were a very bookish family. We didn't do music and we didn't do art galleries, but um, we did do books. We were very like, um, was it Richard Hoggart? I mean, the, the, the rise of the working, the influence on the working class, of, of, the, of the reading culture, libraries, public libraries. Um, newspapers. Newspapers, absolutely. Um, the Manchester Guardian, as it was in those days. And I learnt from a very early age that there were two newspapers in Sheffield, the Sheffield Telegraph and the Star, and the star didn't like my father because he was Labour and, um, or was it the other way around? No, the Telegraph. Anyway, one of them was our friend and the other was our foe. <laughs> and I remember feeling quite partisan from a very early age in defence of my father's politics. And, and I understand you went to a Quaker school. I did go to a Quaker school. Um, 
and that was a choice on my father's part. Um, we had been at a Sheffield Girls High School, um, and we went to boarding school in York, the Mount School in York, which was a very good school. My father was not then a Quaker, though he subsequently became one. He was oh. sort of... He was sort of vaguely C of E. They'd been brought up Methodist, low church, as people were in that region. So religious or...? My father was religious. My father was religious, but he wasn't happy with the Methodists and he wasn't happy with the C of E. And he was happy with the Quakers. Right. Right, right. And your mother? My mother followed him into the Quakers' uh, faith. Um, that she was a bit more of a fellow traveller because she always said when she was young she was an atheist. She was a a Shavian atheist. I mean, she read Bernard Shaw. I remember this big volume of Bernard Shaw's plays. So she was was an atheist, but then she became a Quaker. Um, I'm not quite sure why. My father had a religious temperament, but my mother didn't really. Right, 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 right. And did the Quaker schooling have an impact on you? Did that a very deep consequence? impact? Ah. It was a very good school right. academically. It was very good. Um, I made very good friends there, who are still friends, and the ethics were they went deep. Um, and when we meet together today, as we sometimes do, we discuss the things that we were told we should do and the things we shouldn't do. The things we shouldn't do was never sit, advertise yourself, never blow your own trumpet, never um, say how wonderful you are, which was difficult in this day and age to learn to keep a sort of low profile. Um, and we were told that there, every, there was the light of God in every man, which uh, every woman too. And I think I, we believed that. We were always um, finding apologias and excuses for people's bad behaviour. And then Cambridge to do English. And then Cambridge to do English. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I'm right in saying you actually really wanted to be, to start with at least, you wanted to be an actor. I did indeed. And at Cambridge I had um, a very um, um, happy time with the, the Marlowe Society and the Amateur Dramatic Company. And um, it was a great generation of actors. Um, there's uh, Ian McKellen and Corinne Redgrave and Derek Jacobi and my late husband, Clive Swift. It was a wonderful generation of actors. And I was lucky enough to be one of them. And it was, I learned a lot about literature through drama. As why, well as, why didn't you continue as an actor? Well, I tried to. I mean, I went to Stratford and I did a bit of walking on. Um, but I was expecting my first baby. And it, after two or three years as walk on and sort of um, not getting very understudying, I realised that it wasn't a very satisfying life and that um, it wasn't good for the babies either. So I then... Um, and at, during that period, I wrote my first novel, which seemed a lot easier. I mean, it just seemed That seems easy. to me superhuman. I mean, I, I mean, I have t- babies and children around my house and yeah. I find writing extremely difficult. How, how did you manage to write? I mean, you're, fa- you're famously hardworking, but I don't know how you managed to write with children at the same time. Well, I did it in the evenings when they went to bed because my husband was an actor and he was out every night. And otherwise I was alone. I had nothing to do. I mean, I was upset at the time. I felt quite lonely and um, abandoned in Stratford-on-Avon where I didn't know anybody. Um, so I wrote a book and then, of course, I got to know people. Again, one or two of them are still close friends. But I, I was um, driven to it by having small children, babies in the house and not being able to go out much. And we, So you've spoken before about having had periods of depression... Was yes. That, was that a part of your post 
childhood experience, or did that come later? No, I was quite depressed as a child at various points. I, I was a depressed child at one point. Right. I got depre- I wasn't depressed when the children were small because I was too busy. But I, I have had periods of depression. But I think most people do. It's just that people don't mention it so much. But I have a very volatile temperament. I go down very quickly and then okay. I come up again. I see. So okay. I did go down very, very deep sometimes. And I've always been... I think volatile is a politer word than some I could choose. Right. Yeah. Is the writing and the depression somehow linked? It certainly is. I think I think writing is very therapeutic. Some writers won't hear about that, but I, I think it's obvious that um, some of us use it as therapy. We write things out. We, we work problems out on the page that we can't work out in real life. And it's, um, it's an occupation, which is always good if you're depressed. And it's a therapy in that you confront things that you might not otherwise wish to confront and you you confront them at one remove. So tell me about your first novel. My first novel was called A Summer Bird Cage and I wrote that while I was expecting my first baby who's now well in his 50s, so that's a very long time ago. And it was about two um, sisters deciding whether to marry or to have a career, which I, I, I was at that point, in, I was 21 years old. I'd just got a nice degree and I didn't know what to do with it. I was a, a wife in suburban Stratford-on-Avon, a town I've never liked all that much. And I was wondering why I'd got married, really. Um, so the novel was about choices, which a, a lot of fiction is about now, but then it was quite an unusual subject to tackle, and so I, I, I was lucky there. I just wrote about what was under my nose. And th- there's something in your, there's something in a sort of style that you pioneered, I guess, about the inner life, particularly of women, that period of time, and and through that, you know, talking about sort of wider sort of social issues. Is that something you set out to do consciously or did that just develop over time? It was completely um, spontaneous, I think is the word I'm looking for. It was was spontaneous. I started to write and I I thought I'll write in the first person because then I'll get away from... You know those essays one wrote at Cambridge on the one hand, on the other hand, everything very balanced and impersonal? I thought, no, I'll be absolutely first-person voice. And when I found this voice, I found I could just chatter on and discuss anything. I mean, it was a great revelation to me that you could talk about anything in the first person. You didn't have to qualify. You could just put idea, float ideas out. And I found I was writing. I mean, I don't think I was consciously in a summer birdcage writing about the predicament of the slightly overeducated young woman whose family expects her to get married whether she wants to or not. But that's what I was writing about, really. And I think as the novels moved on, they were always writing about the immediate social... Um, framework I was in, which in those days was of early feminism. I We didn't call it that because I didn't see anybody else. I didn't know these other writers that were around me. But there was, in the early 60s, a lot of movement that way, a lot of writing. I mean, there's a... I always think of Middlemarch when I think of, yes. some, <laughs> of, of, of some of what you've written. and I, that's, that's flattering. A... <laughs> that's, that's very nice of you. Yes. Well, Middlemarch did have you... a big influence on me, yes. Right. We, we read that at Cambridge. Uh, um, Dr. Leavis was the kind of great um, 
eminence um, in my day and um, he admired George Eliot and so did we all. Only yesterday I was having a conversation with a great friend of mine about how awful it was that at school we were made to read George Eliot's Silas Marner, which we hated and which is not a very good book. And my friend never got over the shock of the boredom of Silas Marner. I see. I, I overcame that and moved into Middlemarch, <laughs> which remained the model of the great novel and still is the model of the great novel. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, so even someone great can write bad books like Silas Marner. It really is a boring sentiment. <laughs> Do you yes. think you've written bad? It's a terrible question to ask you. Have you written bad books? I certainly have written books without plot and um, without coherence, yes. I, right. I don't think I've written anything as sentimental as Silas Marner. Right. Sentimentality is not your thing, is it? You're not noted for sentimentality. I hope not. I hope not. What's so wrong with it? I'm a bit of a sentimentalist, I have to say. Ah, Well, I'm always bursting into tears about sad things, but that's not being sentimental. Okay. I I think being sentimental as a writer is telling falsehoods. I see. Uh, The falsehood in Silas Marner is that this horrible old miser would be nice to this little girl. He wouldn't have been. You know, it's just impossible. So sentimentality is false. So it's a lie. It's not not being moved to tears by things very easily. It's, uh... It's falsehood. It's, it's artistic Emotional falsehood. Emotional falsehood. Oh, Artis- artistic, artistic falsehood. falsehood. Well, for a writer, that's sentimentality. I see, and I, I think see. for a painter, it's when you get very soppy paintings of people dying very beautifully, sort of on the heights of Montcalm or whatever it was called. Yes, that's yes. a sort of sent- it's patriotic sentimentality. We'll, we'll come back to patriotism and all of that, because I think I would like to talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that. But, you know, you say you just wrote what you... You, you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't greatly planned out. No, no. Well, how would you characterise, you know, what you were doing in those early years? Well, now you look back, would you see it differently? Would you see it as a part of some wider exploration? Yes, I think I was charting women's lives. And I realised in my second, third novel, particularly with my third novel, The Millstone, that people hadn't written about this kind of thing. I mean, the the Victorian novel was mostly written by women who didn't have children, apart from Elizabeth Gaskell. And so there was very little about maternity, very little about the conflicts of maternity. And um, because that kind of woman hadn't written a book. So there was a whole new field. And as I wrote, I mean, I realised there were a lot of other women like Nell Dunn and Doris Lessing and Faye Weldon, who were all writing, but I didn't know them in those days. I mean, they were, we were all just alone in our little kitchens and houses. Um, but there was actually a movement, um, which in the 60s, as it the decade war on became formalised and people started having women's groups. And um, I mean, almost by definition, groups. it's very hard to have groups when you've got children and you haven't got any time to get out. So Exactly, and I never belonged to a group because the children were too small. Um, though I did in Stratford-on-Avon, I did found um, a nursery group which was in a church hall and I think it may still be going. Oh, wonderful. And they'd forgotten me long ago, but but I did get a bit of social cohesion going because there were a lot of young mums there, some of them actors, some of them wives of actors, and we did have a really nice little nursery group. And did you enjoy being a mum? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear about the death of your daughter. Oh, no, that was a great greatest tragedy, no. I'm sorry, that's... So, let's talk about... Let's talk about um, social commentary because England is a part of the sort of 
stuff that I feel you write about, or the condition of England. That's that yes. tradition of the condition of England novels and so forth. Is it all the countryside, or is it towns, or is it? Uh, you seem to be an avid explorer of places. I love going around new places on foot. I mean, I can't do that as well as I used to be able to. But yes, I, I'm very interested in the condition of England. And one of the good things when the children began to grow up was that I could go out and do a bit of you know, pottering around, a bit of research and so on. And so my novels moved from being rather indoor with, with small children to being much more condition of England. I, I was very interested I, during the miners' strike in Sheffield, my hometown. I went back a lot and I met David Blunkett and I did interviews and I really enjoyed being a journalist, you know, and then I turned that into a novel, The Radiant Way. But that was very much a condition of England novel. And I go up to Sheffield now and I see quite a thriving city with two very fine universities and with the Crucible, which had the wonderful wit to make itself a theatre and a snooker hall. I mean, just brilliant bit of crossover there. And then you go to the black country where I did a project three or four years ago and you just see tragedy around you. I mean, well, you see nice people and I made good friends there. But it's a really sad place. Oh, it's a vicar in the black country. Is yeah. it not a sad place? In it's a hard place. It's a very hard place. West Brom, you see. I mean, I, yeah. I did rather love West Brom because I was there with a, a nice local woman who she knew it very well and she'd take me to talk to people. But I could tell life was hard. Yeah. I was a vicar on an outer city council estate in Walsall. And uh, me. it was a, it was a, I mean, I learned more than I've ever learned anywhere else. And I was only there for a, a very, very short time, but it was the most extraordinary place. They have a very strong sense of identity and, yeah. of, and of good humour. Yeah. But, but the industry's all gone. Nearly 80% Brexit voting. You know I, mean? I know. I, I feel yeah. sorry for everybody up there because mm. the people I met, I mean, I went round laundrettes and, and, hair salons and cafe on the corner. Everyone was so nice to me. They were really, really nice. and But you could tell that their lives were... Their, their, their lives were hard. Their lives were hard. So how does... How, how, do, you, how do you put these two things... So here are two things that we've yep. discussed so far. We've discussed a sort of, to use your words, a slightly over-educated Cambridge... Yeah. Um, in t- someone concerned with the inner life, interiority, yeah, yeah. particularly women's issues. And then there's this sort of passion for social justice and concern for the sort of condition of England and places like so how does the interior and the and the social how do you that's a crucial thing that in your work how they, how do they link well if you're a clever novelist and i don't know if i am a clever novelist you can have characters in your story that represent the different bits of the plot as it were you can have characters who represent the deprived and embattled life without much political consciousness or time to look inwards. And you can have characters who are reflected within the same storyline. I wrote a novel called The Ice Age, which was about the, the slump and, and the oil price at the end of the end, late 60s, early 70s. And I had quite a big social range of characters there, including very self-reflective people and other people who were just out for the money. And I enjoyed doing that because you could have a big range of, of, of... And in a novel, the good thing about the novel is you don't have to take sides. You can show people um, reflecting what's going on and you don't have to necessarily come down on one side or the other. Everybody gets their say, don't they, in the novel? Everyone gets their say, and you can show um, deprived lives as having dignity. The, the latest novel I wrote was mainly about old people, and I used one experience I had going around an old people's home in, um, in um, 
Sandwell. Sandwell, yes. Sandwell. Sandwell. Which was so interesting. And I just put this character who had moved me into the novel, speaking for herself, really. And she, she said to me, do tell my story. How could I tell her story? But I did tell her story. She will never be able to read it. I doubt if she's alive now. But I felt I could tell her story within the novel, within the frame of the novel. Well, are you a moralist? I think I probably am. I mean, I'm always saying things like, that's not ethical. I mean, I don't think I believe in good and evil. Um, I, I, I don't like the word evil at all. I find it a very worrying word. People, And I don't like it when judges use it. It's not a good word for a judge to use. But I do believe in right and wrong and, okay. and good. I believe in good. I, I don't think I believe in evil. I just think people have... have um, that some, well, as the Quakers would say, the light of God was dimmed within them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. I I think I probably do believe in evil, but... Uh... Yeah, well, maybe you've seen more of it than I have. I don't... I mean, it always seems to me just to be an aberration that pe- people have gone mad and um, that something terrible has happened in them. And then Is I... this your Quaker thing about... You know, you, I think you described it earlier as sort of always making justifications yes, for people, yes. always sort of like yes, always I, I think, trying to find the good in them and so forth. I mean, when you read about people who do terrible things to children or other human beings or even animals, you think that's not normal. Something went wrong. Uh, something went wrong with the, with the, the mechanism. Mm. And that's how I tend to look at things. I suppose I, I would like to think that everything was curable. But I've taken a, a as years have gone by, I've taken a dimmer view of the human race as a whole and I think probably we are incurable. But whether that makes us evil, I don't know. Maybe it's a word that has complicated sort of metaphysical connotations yeah. and it's a way of sort of I don't like the way we should other it really. I think we have to look at it and understand it within our Within ourselves. Well, within ourselves, actually, I do, I do. I mean, there's a bit of that when you're writing, isn't it? I mean, you're exploring yourself and your own personality and your own weaknesses and failings. There must be, there must be something of that, or does it does it just get past that pretty quickly? No, no one is always examining oneself for faults, and I suppose in fiction you can um, confess to very minor faults and feel you've got rid of them. But of course, you're probably right that the very serious things one doesn't dare to look at at all. In fact, I know that one doesn't dare to look at them. You've written um, biographies, mm-hmm. Arnold Bennett and mm-hmm. others. Um, an autobiography? No, I won't do that. I mean, I've done bits of memoir. I wrote a book that was largely about my aunt, but I don't think I'll do a, a, a memoir. It's so difficult because of all the other people involved. They're called memoirs. They're not called autobiographies anymore, Well, they? Well, no, they are called autobiography if, if you do it more seriously. I see, I see. It, a memoir, I think, is a sort of um, a slice of autobiography. I see, I see. It's not, it's not a complete thing. I see. Don't you think an autobiography has to be the whole lot? Yes, I think it's probably right, I, I really don't know. But anyway, I don't intend to do it because I'm, I'd annoy too many people. So <laughs> I don't, I don't do anyway, I can't tell the you truth. You don't strike me as a... As a cantankerous sort of person that's no. picking fights with people. No, I don't pick fights, but I mean, I, I can't really tell the truth, even about people 
I've known very, very well. You know, I, there I are see, things I, I don't, I don't want to say because they might not like me to say it. Yes, yes, I understand. Yeah. That. Even people that you love, I... even people that you love. Yes, yes, it's yeah. you know we're all complicated creatures. <laughs> yes, we are very complicated, and I think poets have the better part because they can write a poem about somebody <laughs> they love, and they can put everything into it because they're better at that kind of thing than I am. But in prose, you have to, you have to tell prosaic truths, and they're often embarrassing. I'm trying to write a book at the moment and it involves my... I don't know if I'm going to say, I have to say it, it now, it started. It. it involves my grandmother ah. who, uh, it turns out, slept with uh, lots of, of the Nazi German uh, during, the, during the war. So she, she had a, a farm in Leicestershire and, and um, they, uh, uh, they had... Um, German and Italian prisoners of war. My grandmother stayed with them all. And the, well, and, that's all right. And they, they were only prisoners of war. And they, um, no, no, no. Nonetheless, the village ostracised her. And I couldn't tell when I was a child why, why this was such a cold and chilly house, and no one. My granny, who was this sort of very church-going, <laughs> you know, church-going camouflage, was all over the place. And that's why the village didn't speak to her. And it took me. This was your uh, grandmother. This was my grandmother, and it took me. I mean, it took me. Well, I only think I realised this about ten years ago. Um, so, you know, there's a sort of truth that, I mean, I've said it now, my grandmother's long dead. But and she's long dead, so She's, she's long matter. dead, but it affects other members of the family, this, that and the other. So those are truths that yes, are hard to, you know... Yeah, there are, there are probably secrets in all families yeah, 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 that so, we will never know. It's one of the privileges of being a priest, actually, is that you, is that you become the person who, at funerals, mostly at funerals, but sometimes at weddings, that you get the sort of... Um, this is what the true family's like, and uh, and it's be, always yeah. more rich and complicated and difficult. Everybody always says, oh, "I'm sorry, our family's completely different to other families." And I say, "No, you're not. You're exactly the same. They're all different <laughs> from one another. They're yeah. always. We've all got skeletons in our cupboards. Mm. Yeah, mm. I'm sure mm. that's, that's, that's In fact, it's a common factor. It's like everybody's ashamed of all of those sorts of things, but actually, it's one of the things that unites us. It's how yes. how complicated our family lives are, and our inner lives are, and our you know all all. all but our... nowadays, people's sexual lives are so much more in the open. See, I wasn't brought up like that at all. You never told anybody anything. But now, I mean, the, the, the range of sexuality that's permissible and the kind of ephemerality of it is really startling to me. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, you're the age of my children, but, I mean, they are still a bit startled by it. I, I think, I, I, think I, uh, I grew up with that as a part of the norm, actually, at my age. That was a part right. of the background. OK. So, for me... I sort of that's a sort of default setting in me. Yes. Even when I become as older I get a bit more conservative. I think my sort of liberal attitude to um what would have been non-standard sexualities yeah. Yeah. whatever you that's not the right description but I don't have any that's just normal now. That's just entirely it is normal. That's entirely normal for me as well. Do you have so much sex in your novels? No, I, no, not really. No. Well, I do have some. I do have some, but um, they're not based on... There was one sexy novel which was called The Waterfall, which was about an adulterous affair. But most of them, it's just part of domestic rather than romantic life. Um, but but I'm still startled by the sort of the Bridget Jones life. I, Though, yes, I mean, yes, she's yes. getting on a bit now. How old yes. is Bridget Jones now? Yes, I mean, she, <laughs> she yes. and, and I mean, as for gay marriage, I mean, I'm absolutely 
delighted by it, but never would I have thought I would see it in my lifetime. I no. think it's... I don't quite see why they want... why people want to get married rather than just having a partnership. But I... It's a, a change I would never, ever have predicted 20 years ago. Are you a part of that feminist generation? I use feminist in inverted commas, maybe we'll come to that in a second, but for whom marriage is something that's problematic, patriarchal and... Uh... Not, re- not really. I mean, no. I married to get away from home. I mean, and I think my generation did. We married at the age of 20 in order to avoid living with our parents forevermore, which you were expected to do until you had your own house. Right. So so that was very much my my sort of take on marriage. It, it was a useful way of, of, of being independent. But I, I now do think of it as being a patriarchal institution, though neither of my marriages have been particularly regular, so... So are you, but are you a feminist? Is that a discussion? No, no, I'm certainly a feminist. You are. I would call myself a feminist. Am I right in saying that your earlier work bears more obviously the hallmarks of a feminist influence than your later work? I don't know. I mean, okay. I, I, don't, I honestly wouldn't be able to say. I, I, I think I'm identifiable as a feminist, um, but it's hard, it's hard to say why. I, I think I just tend to give the woman's point of view. Growing up a woman today, as you see it, are there a, a different set, a unique set of challenges in the sort of, as we're getting into the 21st century that you think were different to the ones that you wrote about um, when you were first married? I think that they are different, um, but some of the problems are exactly the same, like what do you do about childcare? It is now phenomenally expensive. I can't understand how much people have to spend on, on childcare. And, um, and yet two incomes are necessary. I think young women in their 30s, 40s work amazingly hard and and it wasn't so in my day a lot of people didn't work but if we did work we could get very cheap you could get find a nursery school you you, you could just pay a neighbor to look after your children for a few hours it has now become astronomically expensive to earn your living and I, I find that very worrying I remember in my day Jermaine Greer who's about my age was I think she at one point recommended children should all be put in kibbutzes which of course was not the solution <laughs> that appealed to us young mothers but she didn't really address the subject of what to do with children and I think that has become as as big a problem as it was um, when I was young it, it, it's a, a very big social problem and if you live in London and and where space is expensive, so you you live more on top of each other. I mean, I'm very lucky to live yeah. in a vicarage, which is bigger, but, uh, yeah. you know. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of, you know, I have two, I have another baby coming and a, a two-year-old. And the, the tension of both of you working, uh, trying think... to prepare for an interview with Margaret Drabble as well as trying to <laughs> trying to get my child ready for anniversary. It's not... Well, it's not <laughs> I'm glad you're doing your bit domestic. Well, I, would, I have to say, um, this morning I didn't do much of my bit, actually. So. Well, some days you do and some days you yes. don't. I mean, no, it was it was interesting. My, my husband, Clive, he was an excellent father, but he he was very absent through work quite a lot of the time. Mm. I mean, you know, he was on tour with the Royal Shakespeare or whatever, and he wasn't there. But when he was there, he was very, very good. And then we split up and I did most of the stuff. But he was always very, very keen... Um, to do the weekends or to take them up. He, no, he was a very devoted father to them. So, so can we talk about God? Yes. You're not, you're not a... You didn't take your father's side. You took your mother's side in the end, I guess. That's what I feel from, from your writing. And you may, have, you may have a sort of moralistic streak, but... I think I'm... 
I, I say this as a, a, a way out. I'm a pantheist. I believe in God when I am, in a Wordsworthian way, when I'm looking at... Okay. In Somerset, but not in London. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's very hard to be a pantheist in London because <laughs> nature's not present enough. Right. But, but, I, but I, I do feel the sense of the immortal shore and that kind of thing. Right, right, so, right. so from that point of view, I'm more like my father than my mother. Okay. But, but I, whether I believe in God or not, I, I really don't know. So it's a sort of, you have, perhaps you have the religious instinct, but don't have a, 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 a way of, I don't know, Cashing it out intellectually or something like I that. I think that's it? exactly so, exactly so. I mean, there are poems I say to myself. I mean, I, I say, I don't say prayers. or I wish I could. There have been times in my life when I wished I could pray. But there are poems that serve as prayers and I say them to myself. Oh, what? Go on, tell me what. <laughs> well, I, I, say, I say words with poems. I say bits of the immortality ode. I say about my daughter, I say, surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, uh, which is the sonnet about the loss of his daughter, which is the most beautiful poem. And and I just, and there's some Emily Dickinson poems that... Um, oh, I, I love. I grow accustomed this world to the is dark. not conclusion. Yeah. See, they're, they're, they're <laughs> what was the one you were going to say? We sorry. grow accustomed to the dark. It's just a wonderful poem. And uh, those poems give me a sense of something much deeper than... Um, than organised religion has ever done. But that's because I've never been inside a faith, apart from the Quakers, who, as you know, don't say anything much. <laughs> so It's disorganised religion. Yeah, I yeah, do disorganised yeah. religion. But, but my, my, my first husband, Clive, was Jewish. And I do find the, the Jewish faith... I went to a bat mitzvah the other day, which was deeply moving. It was a, a, this 14-year-old girl bravely speaking, and the singing was wonderful. And I could see that the sense of belonging in that community was so strong. And that's something I've missed in my life, a sense of belonging. I guess that's the problem with a sort of Quaker faith where you're basically sitting on sort of almost on your own or in, in, yeah. the, the inner life is prioritised, but uh, not the, the communal existence. Well, I think if you're a practising Quaker, there probably is a community of service. And, I mean, the Quakers are very active abroad. I mean, I have Quaker friends who are still very active. But as I'm not a believer, I, I can't really belong to that. But um, And also, I, I do feel lonely in that I've never had a, a proper job. And I, I feel envy of people who belong to a community or a college or... Um, Some sort of tribe. You're not a tribal person, No, I haven't you? got a tribe, no. Uh, and I suppose writers are my f f colleagues, and I do know quite a lot of writers who are good friends, but I don't have a place which I could call my home, no. Yes, I'm envious of tribe yes. in some ways. Yes. What do you think of all this Brexit stuff, Margaret Travel? Don't. What do you, what do you think? I think I just thought about tribe when I said about tribe. I thought yeah. part of it is just the part of the desire is a desire to. I'm a Brexiter, I have to say. So um, you're a Brexiter. I, I am. I'm one of those left wing. You're the Brexiters. only ones I've met. Oh, I'm sorry. There, there, there are so few of you. You're unique. There you are. I've met a Brexiter. I have to. I have to confess. And so, well, we are. You know, this we're the majority. Of, we were the majority of the population. But I think one of the things about it is a desire for some sense of. Belonging is a desire for some sense of belonging. I, I do think that that's right. Um, I mean, and especially we talked about um, uh, the black country and places yes, like yes. that. You know, such a strong sense of need for belonging and so yes, forth. Yes. And I think I have that. That though that's unfulfilled or partially unfulfilled in my life, and I have the same 
but you're a man of the church, so you must belong yes, to I the do, church. Yes, I do, I do, I do, so, I do. And you, and you have parishioners, you have... Um, I do, I do. We move around a bit, though, so it's not quite... OK, the... so you're always moving on. A bit, yes. There, yes. So there is a bit of moving on. Yeah. Um, mm. But I'm always jealous of I'm always jealous of people who have deep, a deep sense of roots, you know, um, which I, I, I think... My, 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 parent, my father was in the Air Force, so he moved around when I was a, a kid all the time, all the time moved around, so I feel quite deracinated. Oh, now, that's a very interesting, because that, that is... You were always on the move and you were living with other people who were on the move. Always, yeah. yeah so, so, no, I, I didn't have that. But um, but was that within England or abroad? And abroad as well, Germany and... Uh... I read somewhere in the paper the other day, some... Somebody saying, "I had a very happy childhood because we were all in Germany, and it was like living um, in a, a holiday camp all the time because we were so well looked after." And I thought, "Wow, that's an interesting interpretation of being a child in a kind of." Um... It's a very strange. I um, I was a child in in Germany, and we were in the southern part of Germany. We lived in Munich, and uh, this is a very very bizarre story, but it's true, and we had. Uh, uh, we used to have our social life at the American PX. So the PX yeah. was the sort of social centre. And the PX was just outside Munich in a town called Dachau. Good God. And they had a, a golf course at the American PX. That's where I learned to play golf. And I know to play golf and three or four of the holes boarded up against Dachau. And if you hit the ball wrong, you hit it into the concentration camp. That's it, extraordinary. It, it's a very bizarre juxtaposition of yeah. when you're a child. And I, and I think I knew about... Dachau as a PX before I knew about Dachau as a... Why am I talking about this? No, that, that is extraordinary. Well, well, it was because of the rootlessness of your childhood yes, yes, being, yes, being right. constantly moved on. Yes. Where, whereas I suppose, yes, I, I, did, I, I never had that feeling, but I did have a feeling that the place where I was really happiest as a child was when I was very, very tiny. My father was away in the war, but I'd forgotten he existed, and I went to this little village school... And I have such rosy memories because I really belonged there. That's was... the Max, Max, did you say Maxted or something like no, that? No, no, it was a school. Uh, we were living in Pontefract. Oh, Pontefract. We were yeah. living in Pontefract. And this was the little village school. And we went on the bus. I was only three and a half. But we all went to the school. And it, there was a sense of such deep belonging that it was my village and my school. And we all went on the bus with, with the conductor. He used to stop and put us all on. And I'd, I got my library ticket and I was only four. And I just found that I still have a sort of very nostalgic vision of it. And I, I suppose we talking. We started this conversation. I guess we're talking about community and Brexit, didn't yes, we? Yes, absolutely. And part of what you've described there. I mean, some yeah. people would yeah. say that this is a sort of fantasy, nostalgic yeah. fantasy. But it, some of that still animates a desire for some of that community. Still animates a sort of uh, a, a political vision about. Um, who we want about to be about England? About so, England? Yes, that's. I know what you mean. Now, in um, in my aunt's village, Long Bennington, which was in the middle of the Midlands, there were no foreign people. It was just all white. And you see, I can't see that as a dream because I've lived in London. No, no. So I mean, I don't see that as a dream I, at but, all. But people do. People do. They, they, I mean, I think the dark side of Brexit is that they just want everyone else to go away. Yes, I agree and, with that. And I don't feel that at all because my children lead, they're all in their 50s, lead totally multicultural yes, lives. Me. And my grandchildren, even more so. But then they're Londoners. And I, I guess if they were living in the Midlands, their, their lives would, be, would feel very different. They would either be um, 
one thing or the other, they wouldn't be having that sense of melting pot that I think you have in London. I mean, I'm a, I'm a vicar of a black majority church, so yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, but but I, I do think all community has a sense of in and out. You know, it has a sense of who's in, and because of that, has a sense of who's out. And I think that's that's both the plus and the minus of community. And and so to, I mean, it, it's it's easier to be, uh, sort of you know not to, not to talk about the in and the out if you're just not a member of a community if you're sort of slightly more deracinated. Yes, well, I suppose I am deracinated, and and, but you're saying that you, although deracinated, you're also a Brexiter and would like to be. I part have a nos- of maybe. I, else. Maybe I mean you know I'm arguing. I'm arguing against myself in a way, but yeah. maybe I have a sort of a, a desire to reclaim something, some sense yeah. of community, yeah. the importance yeah. of community. I'm, yes. you know that that actually community is central to a, a because I had such a deracinated and rootless childhood, and so I, yeah. I have a. I don't know if it's nostalgia, but I have a sense that community is terribly important in in our human formation and happiness. And it's interesting that your memories of Europe are on, on the whole of Dakar and, and golf, whereas my memories of Europe is this absolute vision, age 17, of going to Italy and seeing this heavenly world, whereas yours aren't quite so pleasant, your, your memories of Mine being Mine are very complicated. Yeah, yeah, you see, I mean, to me, being able to go to Europe and feeling that I was um, part of this as well as England... I'm, I love England, but... Um, I just love also... Would you I, say you were patriotic or do you sort of like... Do you, do you... Um, I'm, I'm very patriotic when other people attack us, when Americans <laughs> have a go at us. I'm very, very patriotic. No, I think England is a wonderful country. Yeah. Um, I, I, I you feel... strike me as very patriotic, but maybe that's just a no, word no, that no, doesn't... Well, I, I find England a wonderful, a wonderful place to live, a very rich and wonderful place to live. And you're pretty uh, English as well. I'm like... very, very English. I mean, I'm, I feel English, I feel Yorkshire, I feel Londoner. I mean, people now ask whether you feel British, and I, actually I feel kind of Yorkshire and Londoner. I mean, if I want to sort of go a bit further than just feeling English, I don't really feel British because I'm not at all Scottish or Welsh mm. um, or Irish, you know, I'm not. Mm. But, um, yeah, I suppose I, I would be happy to call myself patriotic because I think this has been a wonderful country with a, with a one... It ha, is a wonderful country with a wonderful literature, um, which, of course, is my métier. So I'm very lucky to be in such a good place from that point of view. You've written a little bit. We've only got a few minutes to go, and I wanted to get talk about this. You've written a little bit about death and and dying, and mm-hmm. those are themes that, um, that that come up at now and again in mm-hmm. in your work, um, and immortality mm-hmm. and all of mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And you've written that death is not something that scares you. Um, perhaps you could say something about that. Many people are scared of it. I'm not at all scared of death, and. Um... I mean, since my daughter died, I, I just, um, I was scared of her death, but I'm not at all scared of my own. What does it matter? I, You know, sometimes I think I may go and see her, and when her father died, I thought, well, maybe they'll see each other, But which is a ridiculous idea, because I don't believe in an afterlife. But at the same time, I feel they're in the same place, and that's where I will go, so why should I be afraid of that? I have no fear, and I, I have... Um, I'm so busy worrying about other people a lot of the time that I don't worry about my own health, which is good. Which is good not to worry about it. So I don't think I do fear death. I, I, I fear pain. The wisest, death. one of the wisest priests I've known, who was my um, 
my training incumbent when I was a curate, and he mm. was my sort of boss. And he says, and he said something that uh, I, I've told a few people before, and they thought that's outrageous. He said, I don't care at all about my own salvation, about what happens to me. I'm not in the slightest bit bothered by all of that. And I remember when he was, he told me this. I thought that's that's actually that's the triumph. You've that now, is wonderful. That's no. the triumph. That's the death has just released yeah. its sting. Death, thou shalt die. Yes, yes. yes no, that's that's no. that's what I that's what I've hear when you say that yeah, as yeah. well yeah well I, I no I, I don't worry about death I don't I don't give a thought to it now it I don't mean in I mean now Julian Barnes has written a great deal about death and Julian Barnes as a novelist says he's been frightened of death all his life that's and Samuel Beckett wrote endlessly about death it seems to me they waste their youth they waste their <laughs> middle age and they waste their old age just <laughs> worrying about something that will happen to them anyway why worry it, it will happen and if if it should come now so be it I have a I have a feeling that you might have picked your spot though, in a nice English country. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> some Somerset churchyard with yeah. a headstone or no, no 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 headstone. But I'm going to be scattered in the brook where Becky was scattered, oh, and my. then you go straight down to the sea. I shouldn't say this because I don't think you're allowed to scatter. That was like but, um, we all break the rules. <laughs> break the rules. <laughs> no, it, it was so very moving when Becky's ashes were scattered. It was the day of Pentecost, and in this oh, little tiny it? church, there's never a service there, but there was a service and that was so extraordinary we were just in the and that's where I shall go that's where I shall go it's a beautiful place most beautiful place in England thank you very much for talking to me thank you thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me Giles Fraser if you're enjoying the podcast please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions